Welcome back to QAV, episode 317, season 3, episode 17. Got a, an interview coming up today with a terrific guest, Michael D. Michael runs a company called Pythagoras Investing. He has a software service that does a lot of secret squirrel maths in the background, looks at volatility of Australian stocks and uh, suggests to his subscribers when they should buy and when they should sell. So I thought it would be fun to put him and Tony together to have a chat. So that's coming up in a few minutes. Hey, hey, hey. Hi, how are you? Good. Did you see that uh, Roy and HG Australian story this week? I did. It was very good. <laughs> it was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Can't believe how old they're looking. Yeah, they preserved pretty well, though, I thought. Uh, well, they've still got a lot of spirit, that's for sure. It's good to see them still at it. But yeah. They must be in their 70s by now. I was listening to them in the 80s on yeah. Triple J. Uh, I think HG 71. I think Roy's 69 or 70 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no. What a great career, though. They've turned just a conversation into a whole career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they just did something highly unique and it's, you know, it's the same shtick they've been doing forever. Yeah. And, and like, just highlights. I, I remember I remember driving around Brisbane in the late 80s, 90s when I was working and Saturday afternoons, you'd just listen to them. They'd be on for, like, four hours. Yeah. On the radio. <laughs> just, yeah. just dribbling on and on and on. Yeah. And then I remember uh, we went to the Sydney Olympics as a guest of NCR. <laughs> and we'd come back after the night sessions and watch whatever it was called, the games or whatever it was called. Yeah. With Roy and HG at the end. And yeah. we'd, we'd have this American audience and they're going, what? What are they What are they talking about, hello boys, and show us your date? And what, what's all that? <laughs> Who's Fatso the Wombat? He's not one of the mascots. <laughs> he's, gone into, he's gone into a battered sav. <laughs> yeah. I never, watched, I never watched any of their TV stuff, really. So that was all... It was good to see clips of that, um, but... Yeah, in the late 80s, early 90s, used to listen to them on the weekends, sort of driving around Melbourne on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. I can't remember when it was, but uh, just listening to them talk nonsense for a few hours is good stuff. <laughs> you know was. me, I'm, I'm not a sports guy. I don't follow sports at mm. all and never have, but I can listen to Roy and HG talk about it because they made it funny and entertaining. Well, that was the appeal, wasn't it? It really appealed yeah. to non-sports people. Which is what we do with investing on this show, Tony. We make it entertaining, although, as somebody said in an iTunes review, boring and condescending. Really? But, yes. Oh, so, well. So, <laughs> somebody said, you know, they took, they, an hour, they took an hour to, to say something they could have got done in 20 minutes. Well, that's they, true. <laughs> uh, I thought that was amusing. Actually, again, we, we, as we say, like if you don't, if you listen to something for free, as these people, and you don't like it, mm, turn it off. Yeah. Who takes the ten minutes out of their day to go? You know what? I am going to complain, <laughs> write a complaint on YouTube, iTunes about this thing I listened to for free mm. that I did not like. Mm. <laughs> Tells you everything wrong, you need wrong, to know wrong, about wrong, that wrong, person. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like right. in that blazing saddle scene. What are we doing, Mayor? We're harumphing. Harumph, 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 harumph. <laughs> All right, let me get our guest on the line. He's uh, waiting. Okay. Michael, can you hear me? I can, perfectly. Say uh, hello to Tony. Tony, this is Michael. G'day, Hi, Tony. Michael. Hi, how are you? 
very well. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. And uh, thanks for the, the chat that we had last week. That was really interesting. I guess we'll ask you maybe to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your your investing program and, and what you do for people. Sure. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit on me and you sing out or thump the table when you've heard enough. I'm, uh, I'm the father to three daughters and a wife. I don't get to speak very often, so uh, let me know when you're done. Um, <laughs> I look way back when I was an accountant and um, I went into a chartered business, chartered accounting business, and I realized that I was a bit of an oddity and I didn't really fit. Um, but one thing that I used to love to do was invest in the new floats. And so the likes of APN News and Fairfax and Woolworths and Adelaide Steamship spin-offs and anything I could get my hands on, I really enjoyed. So at the end of a year working at this chartered accounting firm, as my mother put it, you walked around with your resignation in your top pocket for the entire year. I literally, on the 365th day, walked into the partner's office and said, I'm going. And I went back and did a whole bunch of study in a short amount of time. I did my CPA, my what was the Fincier Advanced Graduate Diploma in um, Investment, and 90% uh, of a marketing degree, of which I'm not sure why I did that. But it refocused me on the stock market. And from there, I went to work at Austrust. And from there, I moved to uh, QIC in Queensland, Brisbane. And I spent 15 years there. And I absolutely loved investing. And I invested uh, on behalf of QIC small companies in, in the small companies space. And that just suited me down to a T because it gave me an incredible breadth of experience and experiences. And, you know, I didn't feel like I was just analysing banks or scrap metal all day, every day. I had such a variance of what I did. Um, as time went by, <clears throat> after almost 15 years at QIC, I'd got to the point where even though I... I had an incredible education, I was to the point where I needed something a bit different. I was feeling quite constrained and the structures within QIC were wonderful on one hand, but um, not so great on the other. So I broke away and started a boutique where I invested in all caps, as in big and small, on behalf of high net worth individuals. And that was great. Um, I found that as, as all of those years had expired, I had invested in a lot of the top 100 because they'd gone through my hands from being the small cap manager in charge to um, it being able to invest in them quite capably later on. So I had quite a diversification of, of interests and stocks and sectors. And while I was working on setting up the legal framework for the boutique, which was called Harvesting Funds Management. I spent a lot of time working with lawyers, which is not one of my favourite things. I don't know whether you guys have had any experience um, with setting up those sort of structures, but working to get the paperwork together for ASIC is onerous at best. So I actually started working on replicating what was the VIX or what is the VIX index, uh, the VIX volatility index out of the Chicago uh, Board of Trade. 
and trying to apply that to Australia, which seemed like a very good idea and it seemed like something that would keep me interested rather than satisfying the lawyers. And in all of that, I found that the CBOE's measure of VIC's volatility wasn't all that useful because it really just measured what had been to a very point in time, being that, that instant that you measure, uh, and it had no forward-looking value. So that started me on a path of trying to work out how I could use volatility uh, in a predictive sense. And if we fast forward right to today, that's exactly what took probably more than 10 years uh, for me to be able to work out. But that's exactly what Pythagoras Investing does. It uses changes in volatility to tell me when we should buy and when we should sell. So that's that in a nutshell is what Pythagoras does and we do it on a subscription basis and we provide that to uh, private clients, fund managers and um, everybody in between. Wow, what a career. I think you've had the career I would have liked to have had. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a great career in corporate, but uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, now that I've been investing for myself for a while, it would have been fun to have uh, been involved in the funds management industry, particularly QIC. I mean, that was always a big thing. I worked in Queensland back in the 90s. It was always a big thing back then. It, it seems to have done well. What was it like to work yeah, there? Yeah, fascinating. So I started in 1995. So I moved to Queensland for that job. <clears throat> and I remember walking in and they said, um, you know, funds under management was $9 billion. And I just about... Um, fell off my chair and I asked them to put it in a room in $2 coins but of course that, that was met with nothing but derisive laughter. When I left it was about $130 billion. <clears throat> so the growth yeah. was phenomenal and, a, and yeah. a lot of the growth Tony was actual investment performance. Right. So it was one of those entities that had been born out of necessity uh, if you go right back, uh, the entity that did the investing was investing in things like before QIC, uh, whereas investing in things like Scase and Quintrex, uh, <laughs> names that you probably would have known and heard of but would never have touched. And so we mm. inherited all of the government's um, investments like that and we were, we were um, seeded. Look, I can't remember the exact year, but... It wasn't a long time before I got there. And so I, I, I would guess now I would have been about the eighth person in that equities team. And when I left, there would have been 20. Um, when I started, there probably would have been 80 people in the whole of QIC. Uh, there would have been hundreds when I left sort of 14 and a half years later. Um, it was a genuine long-term it was initially a genuine long-term investment entity. And that's, that mm. suited um, my learning and it suited my style at the time. And with the introduction of consultants, that changed. And what would have been a one, two, three-year view on a stock started to become a three to one-month view on a stock. Mm. And more than that, it was a spreadsheet that used to sit on my um, desktop 
and uh, I would know tick by tick every uh, gain and loss for every stock and I would know how much money I'd lost or made in a stock in every given day. And uh, you would think that that would be a wonderful thing, but after a while you can almost feel the ulcers uh, forming in this. <laughs> and it's, it really shifted the focus from what was a very long-term investment horizon to uh, you know, how are we going to write the next um, board report or investment report? And it shifted the, the uh, structure and the methodologies quite significantly over that period of time. So it was very, very interesting. I feel fortunate to have worked under both of those sets of circumstances. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was, it was a government-owned but corporatized entity, and that brought with it its own pressures as well. A classic Quango, as they're called. Yes, I think they've had lots of those <laughs> names over the years. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I've actually, uh, with with QIC and with the, the Future Fund, I wonder whether the government will at some stage in the future realise they should have set up a sovereign wealth fund rather than the superannuation system and put that 9.5% to work in the same way that QIC has and the same way that... that Costello and his predecessors are at the, in the sovereign wealth fund. Mm, I, I don't really have a, a great deal of knowledge that that would add to that. I I think that the reality is that superannuation is a nest egg that will be touched, and I think we've now seen the first breakage of the sacrilege um, starting mm. to happen now, where people are able to access their super. And I understand people are hurting, I really do. And, um, you know, I, I just see it everywhere I look. But where we used to have a system that said that money's gone and it's invested for the very long term and it's invested for the day you get to retire, well, now we've got a totally different taint on the whole system, which yeah. which does worry. Yeah, the seal is yes. broken. The thin edge of the wedge, as they yes. say. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Let me uh, just pick up on something else. You talked about the Chicago Board of Exchange and their VIX, their volatility index. Can you just explain what that is and maybe explain how you adapted it to Australia? Sure. Um, the CBOE actually publishes its methodology uh, for how it constructs this indice. Uh, if I put it in summary terms, um, or the simplest terms I can, it is a backing out or a, or a solving for the implied volatility of every option series, both put and call, uh, in the American market. So what it's try it's quite often referred to as the fear index. And so mm -hmm. what it's trying to do is show you how much uh, of this implied volatility is baked into the market, if that makes sense. Um, my method of, of doing it in Australia uh, involved understanding the metric much more than I probably really wanted to, but uh, what I found was the depth of what's available in the options market in Australia isn't sufficient to give you anything that's even reliable enough to work with. And then the second thing that I really came to understand was everybody looks at this fear index as a predictive entity or a predictive number, but it really isn't. As I say, it's, it's a back solving of the implied volatility that was. It doesn't tell you what will mm -hmm. happen this afternoon or, or tomorrow in any way, shape or form. 
it, it really was just a stepping stone for me to work from one position to the next, but it was interesting. So, so by volatility, I, I guess if I could summarise, and you can correct me if you need to, uh, it's looking at op- options. So it's looking at, I guess, future predictions of what particular markets might do, like the S&P 500, for example. And it's saying that if those predictions deviate from some kind of norm, then the market is more volatile. Is that correct? Similar. Um, so the CBOE, it's basically the bringing together of all of those. So, so options have a, a series of um, individual components that you can look at and solve for. One of those is the implied volatility of the um, indice itself, or sorry, the option series itself. What they're doing is is taking that out of every series and summing them in a very particular way, and the document's about 150 pages long as to how they do it, <laughs> and and then showing you whether we're in a um, a more fearful or a less fearful. So so to give you a perspective, right. Tony, in a pre the GFC 2008, so that's when I was setting uh, harvesting funds management up. In the April of 2008, the fear index or the or the VIX index was about 10 percent. Um, to give you perspective, as as the GFC unfolded, that peaked at 110%. So as each series of collapses and events swept the world, that fear index just rose and rose and rose. Mm-hmm. But what's more instructive or important than just knowing it rose is what happens next. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that most people would understand is an increase in volatility equates to an increase in uncertainty. If uncertainty is on the rise, share prices are falling. And I suppose that's the most basic bridge between the VIX volatility index and what we do. We're looking at what comes next in terms of the turning points and volatility, what they mean, how you interpret them, um, and what you should do, whether you should buy, whether you should sell. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because volatility just means things go up and down. But I guess what you're saying with the fear index is that it's some kind of indicator that things are going down. Yeah, so the fear index, yes, it tells you the level of fear. So at, at 10%, yeah. that's, I mean, it, it's very, um, it, it's innocuous measure. It doesn't actually tell you terribly much, but you would know that if it went from 10 to 30, which it did very quickly, Mm-hmm. Um, then that's a bad thing. Now, the problem right. is you only know it's a bad thing because it just happened. <laughs> you, you don't know that it's a bad thing because it's about to happen. And, and, and there was a, I just can't quite remember the specific definition, but that 110% was basically indicating that there was a 110% chance of uh, share prices going to zero or doubling. <laughs> so it didn't really tell you a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was very, very interesting. And it really started an an absolute fascination with what volatility is, what it means. As Mm. you say, the colloquial definition is change. What we're doing is something quite different. I call it volatility because, um, you know, I haven't really got a better name. The, the, The full name is the Pythagoras Investing Timing Indexes. 
And, and I suppose that is a bit more explanatory because we're using those indices to time the entry and the exit points. Um, but we're probably jumping ahead a little bit um, in that discussion anyway. Oh, no, we can continue there. So does, does the volatility index that you've created help you? I mean, the first step, I guess, is does it help you to select a particular stock? Or are you talking about a whole index when you apply ah, your formula? Good, good question. Now, when I first um, started at all, what we did was we did it at the index level. And in my boutique, what I was doing was I was using it as an indicator as to what was coming next at the index. And then we moved it to the sector and from there to the individual stock. So, so that's the answer to that part. Your next point is a very good point as well. The indices can show me several things uh, over long periods of time. And that is we can see when a price is being manipulated because a price cannot be manipulated for more than eight days in a row without having a price reaction. And so we can see that. And the second thing that we can see is a poor management. And so uh, the one thing that we can't see is fraud or um, dishonesty in a broad or a, you know, a, a methodological way within a company. Now, what I do, and, I, and I've listened to a podcast um, explaining a little bit of your, your base methodology, it seems to me that you, in a mathematical and a fundamental way, choose companies which um, abide by a set of rules that you've, you've uh, created over those two decades, and you therefore mm -hmm. end up with a, a jettisoning of a whole bunch of companies and an inclusion of a whole bunch of companies, and from there you make your decision. Similar mm -hmm. to us, we mathematically uh, exit any stock that has price manipulation or looks to be poorly managed, um, which we determine mathematically, and we will not offer them to our clients. So, how, sorry, just on that, how, can you just explain what you mean by price manipulation and what it might look yeah, like? Yeah, sure. Um, a few different ways. Uh, you can imagine a... Um, let's just call it for argument's sake, a small mining company running up and down Collins Street or George Street and uh, spruiking its story with all of its wares. And um, not long afterwards, there are things that happen, announcements that occur, uh, capital raisings might happen. Uh, that's a classic price manipulation. And what happens is that, that can occur for periods of time. Let's, let's say it occurs for mm -hmm. two weeks in a year but if it's a more programmed and regular event we'll see that in in the indices um, there are other ways where prices can be manipulated by investors in a in a quite overt way that tends to happen at the end of months or end of quarters mm -hmm. um, yep so so there are the two classic ways of it occurring that's through management talking up the stock or through a fund manager trying to make their results look better at the end of a quarter essence, that kind of yeah, thing yeah yeah. Okay. So, um, so for us, we we run hundreds of stocks. Um, we probably offer seventy five on average. So wherever we see that uh, lack of purity, then we just won't play. Mm -hmm. It's different if it's an institution and they've got a lot of money and they've got they're prepared to be very diverse in the way they think and invest. Then that's less of a concern. But when I'm dealing with someone who takes 
who subscribes to five stocks. Um, at the end of the day, I, I want to make sure that those stocks are the, the best opportunity of the best return possible. I don't want them getting mm-hmm. their hands um, burnt by someone who's playing games. You know, it's wonderful to have a price manipulated and you know it goes up and it's in your favour, but <laughs> what if you arrived on the Monday morning after mm-hmm. the capital raising and you ended up getting the other side of it? So I'm mm-hmm. probably a little bit fanatical about that, but that's just me. And I guess, uh, how do you see the quality of management in the in the stock analysis that you do? We don't specifically create a measure of management in Pythagoras. To be frank, there's one measure that we incorporate in our process, and it's price. And we take price multiple times per day, and we create those measures, and we create those recommendations based wholly and solely on price. Now, in this environment, I've actually gone to a, a greater level of um, concern because I'm trying to make sure that any stock that doesn't look like it's got the oomph to be able to do well in this next 12 months, uh, I'm, I'm using a little bit of an extra filter to make sure that we've got the best quality stocks in a market rather than just any old stock that can get through most markets. So we don't specifically comment on the management quality. We don't specifically um, incorporate anything other than price. That's all we need. Do you ever uh, short stocks at all if they come out poorly on your scoring system? Um, The answer is no. The reason is this. In the GFC, I saw a lot of very poor behaviour by hedge funds who shorted. It left an incredibly bad taste in my mouth. That may be naive, and and it probably most definitely is. Um, We have more cells in our system than we need. We could easily create a shorting structure and may do into the future, but for now, that's not part of what um, what we want to do. Right. Do you okay. do that, Tony, you, just out of interest? No, I, I looked at it again, and funnily enough, uh, the, the companies which would score the poorest on my system uh, tend tend to be the dot-com or the high-growth stocks. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they, they, they're going up at the moment, so it'd be pretty hard to short them. Yeah. Um, you probably have periods where you could, but, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, one of the idiosyncrasies of what I do. When I was at QIC, <clears throat> shorting started to become a big thing. And in the small company's portfolio, which is what I ran, we had a billion and a half dollars. And another part of the business would often, without me understanding or knowing, because it was pretty much considered not, none of my business, another part of the business was borrowing stock out of my fund to lend. <laughs> and when I learned about it, I said to them, you know, hang on, we've got 5% of this stock and it's this percent of our portfolio and we want it to go up. That's our business. That's what we want for our clients. And what you are doing is earning a fee for people who want it to go down. (laughs) And I I just Mm. found that such an incredible mismatch of objectives, priorities, call it whatever you will, um, it incensed me. So I didn't have any control over it, but (laughs) at the end of the day, I just think that that's you're facilitating the negative to be exposed, which is not a smart thing. 
Well, I've had the same conversation with individual fund managers in the past, and I said, why on earth would you let that happen? And their standard response is, well, we think the stock will go up, uh, so if we can get that extra fee income from shorting it, uh, the short the short seller's probably going to be wrong, but we still get the fee. So it's, it is kind of a secure, this logic it's, there. It is, and maybe if I was the one earning the fee in my fund, I would have been able to justify that my client was the one that was gaining. But because it was being siphoned off, I found it quite offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Okay. Uh, maybe, could you take us through maybe an example? If you you, you said that we uh, if users of your system can subscribe to a particular stock. Do you have a sort of worked example you can take us yeah, through, look, please? What I've done is... On our website, I've just put up a page last night when I um, when I was considering this. It's uh, www.pythagorasinvesting.com forward slash QAV. And if you've got the opportunity to look at that, Tony, I'll just, just explain to you um, that chart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just let me grab it. So in, in actual fact, the first thing that you see there is that description of volatility and price and the interrelationship. So just to canvas that, um, that notion of rising volatility really does mean um, rising uncertainty. And a, a so that's that bottom line there, the index. At the same time, what you should be expecting is that the price will fall. So our most basic decision is to sell at that point. Now, without wanting to dwell on that, I've got a little example underneath there, which isn't a chart like you might like with um, all sorts of uh, other metrics overlaid, but this is just an example of A2 milk. And it's Mm -hmm. just um, about eight weeks. And... It, it basically shows, so the the orange dot there is a sell. There are three orange dots and the others are buys, the, the stars. Now, what you can't see from this is what the volatility index is doing behind the scenes. These are the outcomes. So, so we literally have about 130,000 lines of code that the stock runs through every day. And it makes makes its decision just once a day as to whether there's a buy or a sell or no change to the position. And so these are the outcomes. Now, <clears throat> I suppose that first orange dot is interesting because it is just before the OPEC um, meeting. And that OPEC meeting is where the oil um, giants with uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and indeed the rest of OPEC changed the course of history and back to 1960 of making one decision where Saudi came out and said, we're going to not only increase volume at a time where oil was already in glut as a result of coronavirus, but we're going to drop the price. And that sent the world into the tailspin that we saw unfold. So just prior to that, A2 Milk sold. Now, it hasn't been catastrophically hurt in any way, shape or form, as you can see. But the interesting thing is, after the sell, there's four quick buys. And those mm-hmm. buys, within a month, returned uh, a bit over 9% each. So one of our fundamental principles is diversification. Now, we want sector diversification. 
and we want therefore stock diversification, but we also diversify when we're buying into the stock. So we don't put one bang lot in on day one and sit there. Um, we take the opportunity to invest and trade in tranches as we go. So as you can see, there's four buys there. Now what, what our clients know is that there is somewhere between four and five buys on average per cycle. And what I mean is a price cycle. Um, so in, if you had $50,000, what most clients do is say that's $10,000 per buy and the more aggressive ones um, a bit bigger than that. And then they would, as each of those buys is, is issued each day, which happens about quarter past 12 um, in, in, during the trading days, as they occur, they would deploy that 10,000 uh, on each one. Now, you can see within the month, you've made um, your 9% four times. And when I think about Pythagoras, I don't think of it as um, a lot of people, when they think of the casino, the, the stock market, they think of the casino and it's the chocolate wheel. You know, you put your dollar down and hope, hope mm -hmm. you get the 35 to one. And I think you're very similar in the way you think about things in that you're there all day, every day, thinking, plotting and mapping out what it is that you want. It's those that have this notion of it's a gambling scenario are the ones who lose the most. And so one of, again, the basic principles is we're trying to buy in the bottom 10 to 15% of a cycle and we're trying to sell in the top 10 to 15% of a cycle. Now, what you notice in about the middle of the chart after that orange is the system makes its new decision every single day based on the information that's available. It then goes back and actually buys another four times. And then within about three weeks, a bit over three weeks, it's sold again. Now, this happens uh, with regular monotony in every stock. And this is a great example, of course, because it didn't get um, smashed. We could use 100 examples. But those price cycles show themselves. We use them. We sell, put the money back in the bank, wait for the opportunity to buy again, and then we're back in looking for an opportunity to do it again. And the next question on your mind is probably, well, how many buys and sells in a year? And the answer is uh, approximately 30 buys per stock and approximately 10 buys per sell. Uh, sorry, 10 sells in a year. So, you, you know, you're getting a three to four by average per cell. And so do you, do you find that uh, that kind of, I was going to say rapid fire, but probably isn't, but that kind of frequent trading uh, has a drag in terms of either capital gains tax or brokerage? Yeah, look, um, brokerage isn't the cost that it once was. The, the broker that I use is sure. about, you know, 10 bucks a trade, whether I trade a million bucks or a thousand. Uh, so I don't find that a problem. Tax is always a drain on um, on your investments. But at the end of the day, I don't know a better way to avoid the bonds and keep yourself in the market for the right times rather than the wrong times. And I've always mm -hmm. been a believer that even though I've never loved paying tax, I'd rather pay it and have the occasion to pay it than not. Yes, <laughs> so I, that's yeah. I agree. 
It's never yeah, paying tax is never a problem because you made a profit. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now the yeah. other thing is people who operate um, in their self-managed super fund, and we've got a lot of those, and it's amazing. Mm. You know, when I started my self-managed super fund, you couldn't use an Aussie wealth or a big super fund and trade within it. But these days you can. Mm. And you can trade mm. for very low price. You don't have to appoint an auditor. You don't need the expensive accountant. And I wish I'd known it um, when I was starting off because it's actually a wonderful way to be investing. And you're doing it at 15% tax and you're mm -hmm. accumulating um, uh, quite substantially towards your retirement. So I think there are some wonderful products that make that less of an issue for you. Yeah, sure. That's good. Could, could you give us an idea of what kind of returns you've been getting with the system? Sure. Look, because the service is making recommendations to clients and not actually doing the trades for them, um, I never know what people actually do. Uh, and at the same time, I'm not trying to say that I've got an investable portfolio because I don't. And if I did that, it would be a different style of service. It would be a lot uh, more expensive and people would be, um, there'd be a lot less clients. So it, with that all said, the realised returns over the last, um, I think it's 12 years, including 2008, are about 21.5%. Uh, when the market ex-dividends ex did about three. So, and is that before taxes or after that taxes? That is before tax. Um, so it's yeah. a very crude measure. And, and Tony, mm -hmm. the other thing is it's realised return. So it's a little, little mm -hmm. bit different from the you know, ruling off at the end of the month. It's, it's actually money sure. in the bank. So. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, I'm just wondering whether a system like this could overlay the system I use. So rather than deciding to buy a stock and buying one position and waiting for a sell signal months or years in advance, uh, would this be a sort of system we could overlay that with? And would, do you think that would accelerate our returns? I think it would absolutely. Um, when, when the, the bit that I know about your methodology, I think I said earlier, was that I think you're choosing good companies in good spaces and uh, hanging on and enjoying the returns as you go. If you can just hold that logic of the A2 milk chart in that uh, QAV slide of our website, um, these price cycles are there all of the time. Most people probably don't even notice them, um, but they're there to be used if you should desire. Now, most long-term investors would just look through them and, and you know check the price once a month, but this, this is happening all of the time. So what I'm doing is choosing good companies that aren't being uh, price manipulated and we're trying to get good sectors and good exposures to companies and then we're overlaying the uh, trading mentality and trying to use those price cycles for um, profit. It's not dissimilar to what you're doing except you're just um, making an investment and, and enjoying the ride as it's happening. Yeah. So yeah, I totally yeah. agree. We won't be providing advice on all of the stocks. You probably wouldn't mm. want to use it on 100% of your um, of your investments. But let's say you had Rio and you were aware that Rio was, you know, uh, well linked to China and you liked the China exposure, assuming that's the case, 
if you could add, you know, if you could double your return out of Rio as a result of using this, I think you'd be super happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. So is there a list on your website of the stocks that you do provide advice yeah. on? Because we have to find the overlap between my selections and your selections, sure. I guess. Yeah. There is, it's under the performance um, tab on the website. And then there's a list I've shown the returns for the last five years for the stock, what we did and what the difference between the two of them is. Uh, I always look at calendar years. That's just a quirky thing um, that I do. And then I've shown the last one year. Um, there are some adjustments to that list. So I like to talk to people. I'm a big fan of um, giving people the independence to do whatever that they want to do and to enjoy their investing and uh, make their own decisions. Right, yeah. And, and is there a minimum portfolio that you would recommend people have to adopt your system? Yeah, there is. Um, the way we charge is per stock, and the charge is $110 per month just for one stock, and then we discount it quite heavily from three onwards. And what that means is that there's a fee for, for the stockbroking and there's a fee for our advice. Now, what I've done is, in my mind, I think 4% is a reasonable charge per um, for, for fees to capital. And I've just backsold for that and said, well, I really think that each person to make the best return for themselves needs between thirty dollars and $50,000 per stock. So that means, you know, we have some people with one stock, but not many. Um, mostly it's three to five stocks. So it's in the order of 100 to 250,000, 200,000, something in that order. Uh, now, a lot of people have got that in their super and a lot of people have got that in uh, free cash, but I know it's not for everyone. So I, I understand mm -hmm. All right. Well, Cam, I know you've been quiet. I think I've exhausted my questions. So thanks. Thanks a lot there. Um, did you have any questions, Cam? No, this is all so far over my head that uh, I'd need a plane to catch up to where you guys are at. But I'm fascinated to uh, yeah, anything that involves software and algorithms uh, working stuff out. I'm uh, amazed by. Did you write all of the code yourself, Michael, or did you hire someone to do it? Uh, I think... I'm now on my seventh programmer. <laughs> I, I, right. I have an ability to understand and to uh, sit with them and work through, because if you've ever written software, um, it's actually quite an arduous process. If you get a comma out of place or a bracket in the wrong spot, nothing works. And mm. so I, but I have an ability to sit and discuss and then go, the problem's there. <laughs> and, and it might be 10 lines of code, but um, that sort of is, is wonderful for me, but uh, annoying for the programmers because quite often, I, I don't know if you're anything like me, I'll be writing a newsletter and I'll put two these in there and never see it. Um, and uh, thankfully my wife can read things um, and, and make more sense of um, correcting them than I do when I do it on my own. but. Um, yeah, it's it's well, not my ability to do the programming, but I've got an integral part in, in solving the problems as we go. Well, we're currently looking at automating some of our stuff. So if you uh, want to recommend 
your programmer to us, shoot us an email. If you don't want to recommend your programmer, I understand. <laughs> well, I'll get, I'll get on to that. I need to hear more about what you need. All right. Well, we'll talk about that offline. Thanks again for coming on and explaining how Pythagoras works, Michael, and congratulations on your success. Thank you very much, and uh, you have a great day, the pair of you. Yeah, thanks, Thank you, Michael. Mate. I think it's I think it's uh, just just as a, a last word. I think it's great that uh, you have a, a methodology which takes the emotion out of things for people as well. Yes, and we didn't even touch on any of that. It's the hardest thing for people to do when you're in a price cycle. You're quite often buying in the hard times, and yes. we're pre-programmed to be emotional as people. And so when something says to you, uh, you ought to buy now. And for instance, Afterpay, we were buying at $9 and $13 and people were probably thinking, wow, am I crazy here? But the reality is at $42, they're laughing all the way to the bank. Well, well done. That's great. Thanks, gents. Thanks for your time. Enjoy. I saw a quote from Charlie Munger this morning. A lot of people with high IQs are terrible investors because they've got terrible temperaments. And that is why we say that having a certain kind of temperament is more important than brains. You need to keep raw, irrational emotion under control. You need patience and discipline and an ability to take losses and adversity without going crazy. You need an ability to not be driven crazy by extreme success either. Yeah, that's beautiful, Cam. Let me add another one by Winston Churchill. Never let a good crisis go unused. <laughs> Uh, I think there's a lot of politicians around the world eating yes. that one right now. <laughs> yes. uh, especially those who want to invade our privacy. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. it won't be long now. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Michael. Bye. Cheers. And of course, as always, don't forget, please don't take anything you hear on this podcast as financial advice. We're not financial advisors. We're here to... Share some ideas, teach Tony Kynaston's method of investing, the QAV system. But if you're looking for financial advice, before you do anything, please go see a financial advisor.